You're listening to Podcast by Committee, produced by Starting Five Productions. And now, here's Andrew and Max Thank you, Mason, as always, for the introduction, and welcome back to Podcast by Committee. I'm one of your hosts, Andrew Brill. And I'm Max Brill. Max, as we took a week off because I was traveling, there's been two champions crowned, one in the NBA, one in the NHL, golf. Something strange happened in golf, and we'll get into that as well. Uh, LIV and the PGA, I guess, merged. I think LIV bought the PGA, but whatever, however you want to call it, it's the strangest marriage that you can possibly imagine. And then there's a uh, a Davey Martinez problem with the Nats. Not going to say he's totally wrong, but we'll get into what he did in his post-game press conference as well after the Nats lost a ball game on a safe call that by all rights should have been out, Max. But let's start with the NBA and uh, the Denver Nuggets beating the Miami Heat in five. And I thought that Miami would get a game. Miami did get game two. They actually took back home court advantage, but then they lost three straight to the Heat, Max. Well, one of us said Nuggets in five, and the other said Heat in seven. And the one who said Nuggets in five, their name rhymes with Schmandrew Schmill. <laughs> so unfortunately, I'm once again wrong here. But the Nuggets were the better team here. And I know I was going against the grain. But I mean, they just flat out played the Heat in really every aspect of the game in this series. Aside from the Heat evening up the series at one, it was Nuggets all the way. And It's really tough because Jimmy Buckets was carrying this club basically to the finals. And of course, the rotation players were playing really well, but Jimmy just didn't perform down the stretch. He shot 40% from three in the final game, but he only scored 21 points on 28% from the field. And, And that was kind of the story of the series for him. He had been so outstanding in every series leading up to this one. And then in the finals, he he just didn't really show up in the same fashion as I guess we would have expected him to, given how how he performed the rest of the way. So I'm, uh, of course, not disappointed to see the Heat lose as, you know, as a Knicks fan and as a Jokic fan, I'm very happy that he won and we can get to kind of how this affects his legacy in a little bit. But yeah, it, it was a little bit of a disappointing finals because the Heat came in so hot. Jimmy had been so good in basically every single aspect of the game up until this series. And then when the lights got the brightest, he unfortunately did not show up. So, you know, like I said, a little disappointed by that, but what are you going to do just to, to get into it from a numbers perspective um, from a numbers perspective, he averaged 22 per game in the finals. Prior to that, he averaged almost 25 a game against the Knicks and the Celtics and against Obviously, we all remember the Bucs series where he averaged 38 a game. That was just ridiculous. But even still, I mean, just just did not show up. The shooting efficiency wasn't quite there either. 41% in the finals after shooting 42, 43, and 60% in the first three series. So, yeah, I mean, I wish I wish he played better. I wish the Heat played better. I wish we could have seen more than just five games here. But hats off to the Nuggets. They were clearly the better team here, and uh, they certainly earned the victory. Yeah, I think when you look at it, look <laughs> – Jimmy Butler averaging yeah, just under 22 Bam out of bio with just a fraction of a percentage better than Jimmy Butler. So those guys, those guys stepped up. But after that, you know, you didn't have anybody that really had a, a big impact here. You know, Gabe Vincent, 11, 11 points a game, Kyle Lowry, nearly, nearly off the bench on nearly 11 points a game, everybody else in single figures and the Denver Nuggets as well. They, they had, four guys that averaged double figures. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. almost had 10. He had 9.6 throughout the, the five-game series. But it it came down to Miami shooting the three-pointer well, which we said was going to have to happen in order for them to win this series. And it, it didn't happen. I, I think that after game one, you thought, okay, we need to see more three-pointers like they did against everyone else. And that's how they beat Boston. That's how they beat the Knicks. They just canned the three-pointers. You saw Gabe Vincent just hit three-pointer after three-pointer. He only averaged 33% 
in the finals. Kyle Lowry was 42. Duncan Robinson was nearly 43. After that, Caleb Martin, who hit some big three-pointers also, only only 33%. So I think that there therein lies the problem for the Miami Heat. And then when you look at the three-pointer percentage for the Denver Nuggets, you know, you'll get you at 42, Jamal Murray, Murray nearly 40, Aaron Gordon 55%, hitting more than half his three-point attempts. So, look, it's no secret what the Miami Heat had to do to win this series, and they just didn't get it done. The Denver Nuggets really came out after game two. They realized that the Miami Heat are going to try and shoot those three-pointers because they shot so well in game two, they started defending the three. And their coach did a phenomenal job of motivating them. He did a phenomenal job of telling them, look, we're going back to Miami and we're going to take home court advantage back. They did that in game three, in the first game in Miami, and then they won game four. After that, I think that Miami was sunk down three to one going back to Denver. I, there was no way that Miami was going to pick off another game. I just they, they were not playing well. I think that when you look at the assists, Jimmy Butler was looking to pass, averaging six and a half assists a game. So I think there was the problem. You need Jimmy Butler to be a little bit more assertive. He needed to score more than almost 22 points a game. He needed to be closer to 30 points a game to make this a series. And he just didn't do that. So that's that was the issue. And that was you know why they didn't win this series. But you, know, you got to hand it to the Denver Nuggets. They outscored them by you know eight points a game. They out-rebounded them. They out-assist them. They out they stole the ball. They had more blocked shots. They did turn the ball over more. So Miami had more chances. But then, then again, the field goal percentage in the series, Denver was nearly 50% and Miami was 40%. And for three-pointers, you know, Miami only averaged 34%. So they needed to be closer to the 40% on their three-pointers in order to make this a series. And they they didn't do that. The one thing the Denver Nuggets didn't really do all that well was shoot from the charity stripe, only 76%. Miami hit most of theirs. They hit 8.5 out of 10, 85% or nearly 86% from the charity stripe. So I think, you know, they didn't get to the line enough. But when they got there, they hit the shots, the Heat did. But, you know, Denver takes this. It's their first championship, and could be the first of many for the Denver Nuggets because they just they steamrolled Miami, who Miami was the team doing the steamrolling in, throughout the playoffs. I mean, Denver had a, a long layoff. They were probably fresher than Miami was for sure. And I think Jimmy Butler was hurting a little bit. I think that he had some nagging stuff that we didn't really know too much about. And I, I don't blame them for letting them, you know, not telling them that they had stuff going on. So, you know, hats off to the Denver Nuggets, and they come away with the NBA championship. So, Dad, now I want to talk about how this affects Jokic's legacy because Jokic, as we all know, MVP already twice in his career, and and you have to keep in mind that he's not even thirty years old. He's just twenty eight. Already has two MVPs. Five-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA. This guy has all of the makings of a a future Hall of Famer easily. And the biggest criticism was that he wasn't able to win. His style of basketball wasn't conducive to winning. A lot of people had the criticism that basketball isn't played in a spreadsheet because all of the advanced stats folks really liked Jokic and really appreciated his game. I think that even with conventional stats, you can appreciate him, right? He's got a career 55% field goal percentage and averages 10 and a half rebounds and 6.6 assists for his career. So plus add on 20 points. That's like, that's good regardless of how you slice it. I think a lot of people say, well, you know, there are a ton of big guys who average 20 points and 10 rebounds and shoot 55% from the floor. Yeah, but there aren't a lot of them who also average six plus assists and a steal and nearly a block per game. He really limits the turnovers. Anytime you watch the Nuggets, you can tell the entire offense runs through him. Obviously, you know my affinity for Jokic, my respect for Jokic. Uh, I'm curious to know what you think, where you think this lands him, because I think this cements him as the best player in basketball right now. I think he should have won the MVP, to be honest with you. I know we talked about that before, but I think he should have won the MVP. So he should have been a three-time MVP. I think that he's on track 
to getting in the conversation for the greatest players of our generation already. And, and he's still got a lot of basketball left. Well, I think when you look at this, the final game, he was 12 of 16 from the floor. So he decided, you know what? I'm not losing this game. Had 16 rebounds. 15 of them were on the defensive defensive end. Four assists. Now, that's not a big number for Jokic, although they, Denver does play a little bit inside out, but four assists is not a big number for Nikola Jokic. Usually, he'll look to pass to find the open guy. If he's not taking the three or if he's not taking the little mid-range jumper, he's going to get down on the block or somewhere in the paint and look for the open guy around the three-point line. So, it's the four assists isn't a ton for him. Jamal Murray led game five with assists with eight for the Denver Nuggets. But where does this put him? I, I think, look, as a two-time MVP and now as an NBA champion, you, you'd have to say he's he's you can argue for a lot of players to be the best player in the NBA right now. But this guy does it all. I think he plays some defense. He's got a tremendous offensive game, and he's now an NBA champion. So I think you'd have to say he's the best player in the game right now. There's a lot of really good players that didn't make it this far. They couldn't carry their team this far. And this this Denver Nuggets team was interesting because we've talked a bunch about the big three on teams. Philadelphia had a big three. The Nets had a big three for a long, for you know, a number of years, and never won an NBA championship. And they have Nikola Jokic, who's one of the best in the game. Aaron Gordon is very, very good. Jamal Murray has clearly picked up his game. He's he's taken his game to another level. So you'd have to say that you know he's he's a, a a tremendous player as well but there isn't a big through this is a, a cast of characters that got the job done they each knew their role they played their role to perfection and they played as a team so i you know hats off to the denver nuggets because they didn't have that that labeled big 3 they had a bunch of guys that played really, really well together. And when you're the general manager of a team and you can do that, well, that's phenomenal. Yeah, Dad, to speak to your point about them playing as a team, I think this stat kind of best encapsulates that. And and it shows not only how everybody was able to fill their role, but also how Jokic is able to get the most out of the guys he's on the floor with. Jokic is the only MVP player in NBA history to never play with an all-NBA teammate an all-star teammate or an all-defense teammate at 28 years old. The only MVP to ever do that. And I think that the fact that he was able to win an NBA championship with that as the case is almost almost not believable. I mean, he literally, he's never played with an all-star, never played with an all-defensive player, never played with an all-NBA player. That's almost unfathomable for a guy in his eighth season. And you add to that the fact that he can kind of just choose what he wants to do. You look at these five finals games. He scored 41 points in game two with 11 rebounds and four assists and shot 57% from the floor. And then in game four, shot 42% from the floor with 23 points, 12 rebounds and four assists. And that was considered an off game for him. So there are games and game one, 27, 14 assists, 10 rebounds. There are games where he can just basically choose to take over the game. He's like, I'm going to get 15 assists this game, and he just does it. I'm going to drop 40 this game, and he just does it. And the only like person who I've ever heard of in NBA history that could do that was Will Chamberlain. And obviously, I've never watched him play in person, and I've watched very little of what is available in terms of film. But Jokic can just do that. Like He can just decide I'm getting 15 assists this game and he'll do it. I'm getting 40 points this game and he'll do it. Obviously a lot easier said than done, but I think the fact that when the going gets tough in the playoffs, he's able to turn it on like that is a testament to how excellent he is. And I'll leave this as my last point. I obviously, I think I've made a good case. It's clear that I believe that he is the best player in the NBA right now, but all time in terms of triple doubles, Jokic passed Will Chamberlain already. He's sixth all time. Three triple doubles away from passing Jason Kidd and LeBron, at which point he'll be fourth on the list with only Magic, Oscar Robertson, and Russell Westbrook left to catch. 
I mean, it's a no brainer that this guy's going to end up at the top of the list when all said and done. So I, I think hats off to Jokic for winning an NBA championship finally and proving all of us spreadsheet folks right in supporting him and believing that he is the best player in the NBA. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what he does next because it seems like he's just a normal guy. Like he was talking about how he wanted to get home and how he didn't really want to go to the parade. Somebody said, are you going to be at the parade? He's like, when's the parade? And they said, that's this week. And he said, no, I, I need to go home. So it, it just seems like, I mean, it's a job, but he really is just a normal guy. He wants to go home and watch his horses. <laughs> well, it, you know, look, home's the most excellent place, right? Just ask ET. But I, you know, he he was at the parade. He is a champion, and look, they have a, a very good chance of being back there next year. It's all about health in the NBA, and got to see who stays healthy. I think that the Miami Heat had a few nagging things, especially with Jimmy Butler. But look, you can't you can't point to that. He did play forty one minutes in the final game, but he shot five of eighteen, and you can't do that and expect to w- win a championship. You look at Nikola Jokic, he was 12 of 16. He hit 75% of his shots. And the Nuggets, clearly, they they obviously knew they weren't shooting the ball well from three-point land in game five. So they said, okay, fine. We'll score two-thirds of our points from in the paint. And that's exactly what they did. They had 60 points in the paint. The Heat only had 44. But they, they had almost half their points in the paint because they had to adapt. That's not their game. Their game is three pointers. But when you shoot 25% from three point land and that's your game, that's not, you're not going to win. So that was the, that was the problem for the Miami heat. They set it up so that they could shoot three pointers. They shot their three pointers and they didn't make them. So, you know, when you look at it, more than two third, uh, more than a third of their shots were from downtown and they just didn't hit very many. Nine of 35 for Miami is not going to get that job done. Yes, sir. And we will look forward to free agency and seeing what happens. There are already some rumblings on the trade market that Zion Williamson could be moving. But long NBA offseason ahead of us. Let's move to the NHL, who also crowned their champion recently, the Vegas Golden Knights, putting in nine goals in the final game of the season to dispatch the Florida Panthers, who, again, I mean, it was a similar story under-seeded team, underdog team, made it all the way to the final, but they were just beat by the better team. And I, I think that's the case here. Uh, the Knights were just head and shoulders the better team. That was also a five-game series. It was a 4-1 deal. Uh, you know, the, the Golden Knights winning it in five games. And look, the, the Panthers' magic potion, whatever you want to call it, as you said, they were a, they were a wild-card team. They were playing really, really well, but they went up against the juggernaut. Look, the the Golden Knights have been right on the doorstep for a couple of years now. They've, they, I think that you know the the, the edict for them was, uh, I think when they started, they they wanted to make the playoffs in three seasons. They wanted to win the cup in six seasons, and that was one of their players that did that in. 2017, and that's when the Golden Knights started, and that's exactly what they did. Their inaugural season of 2017, 2018, they 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 got to the playoffs in three. They won the cup in six, and only six other franchises in NHL history that required six or fewer seasons to win their first Stanley Cup. So five of them won between the the start of the NHL and the repeal of prohibition in the U.S. So I I think when you look at today's NHL, it's a little bit different than what you're seeing way back when this happened before. So I think that, you know, the, the, the Ottawa Senators did it in 1920, Maple Leafs in 1918, Montreal Maroons in 1926, that was their second season. The New York Rangers, 1928, that was their second season. And the Bruins in 1929, that was their third season. But it's, uh, you know, it's taken a while for another team to actually do that. And that the Vegas Golden Knights have done it. I, I actually have a friend that works in Vegas as a sportscaster, and she's been following this team from its inception. And she told me that they're a very, very good team. And certainly they are because they are now crowned the Stanley Cup champions. Yeah, and, and big ups to Jonathan Marchessault here for winning playoff MVP, the Conn Smythe Trophy. He was so excellent for Vegas 
this entire playoff stretch run really. And and he's been kind of just like the key cog, I would say, for this club since joining the team in their initial season because he was kind of a journeyman before he joined Vegas. He he had his, I guess you would call it your breakout season with Florida, interestingly enough, in 2016. And he scored 51 points, but didn't really like get to the level where he is now until coming to Vegas. And and of course, like the breakout happened in Florida. But since he's come to Vegas, he's just been consistently one of the best right wingers in the league. And 32 years old, he's still got plenty of time ahead of him. He had 57 points in the regular season this past year. And then obviously postseason, he just went nuts winning the playoff MVP. Um, so big shout out to him because I think that without him, he had that experience from the Lightning that he was able to then bring to Vegas. And he only played, I think, seven games combined between the two seasons where he played for the Lightning in the playoffs and then able to come to Vegas, bring that experience. I mean, since coming to Vegas, he's already played in over, I think, 90 games in the playoffs for them and then scoring 25 points in the playoffs this year as Vegas just steamrolled the competition. I mean, a job really well done by him. And we had talked about Vegas scoring goals in bunches. They outscored the Panthers 26 to 11. Now, don't forget that the Panthers came into this series with pretty good goaltending, and they weren't giving up a lot of goals, but they gave up 26 goals in five games. That's an average of a little over five a game. And in the hockey community, that's not exactly going to get it done. So I think that, you know, you have to give props to the Vegas Golden Knights. They they did well. They did well through the expansion draft. They did well in the NHL draft. And away they go. So I think that when you look at how the Vegas Golden Knights built their team and, you know, got them to this championship, it's remarkable how quickly it happened. And this is going to be a team that's going to be a force to rec- be reckoned with for, for a while now because they clearly have found a place in Las Vegas as an expansion team that, you know, the fans are behind them. And they had a little help with, you know, the, the Golden Knights went out into the community after a mass shooting when the, the, the team was just starting up. So they had a lot of people rally around them when it was time to cheer them on after the Golden Knights went out into the community and consoled people and, you know, tried to help and do what they could to, you know, comfort people who were involved in that mass shooting. And then the people rallied around them. So, Kudos to them for doing their public service, and it came back to help them. They have a, a pretty darn good following in Las Vegas, and we know that there's a, a baseball team going to land there, but they're, they're not an expansion team. They're actually moving from Oakland, so I don't know that they'll get the same respect and fan base that the Vegas Golden Knights have. Yeah, Dad, and just to expand on your point about the goaltending for Florida, Sergei Bobrovsky had played prior to the Stanley Cup final in 14 games, and he had given up three or more goals in just four of those 14. He gave up three or more goals in four of the five games against Vegas in the Stanley Cup final. So it was just a different beast. I think that obviously the Bruins were the best team in the league this season, and the fact that he was able to play as well as he did against the Bruins was pretty outstanding. But since then, I mean, I don't think he saw a team with the offensive firepower that Vegas had, and it just kind of overwhelmed him. And I think that in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you're only as good as your goaltender. And the Panthers just did not get the best version of Bobrovsky for the five games in the Stanley Cup final. Nope, not at all. And, you know, that's, you know, Vegas throwing a lot of pucks at you doesn't help that situation at all. But, you know, Vegas played really, really well, and they came away with the Stanley Cup, and they get to drink out of the Stanley Cup and just have their fun. So I think that when you you know look at hockey, and it's weird to – you go to a, a place where it's 90 degrees in game five, and that team wins the Cup. And it was, it was very strange because it was Miami, I, and I think I had said this before, it was a very – hot weather place in Miami against a very hot weather place in Las Vegas. And one of the teams had to win and the ice was, I guess, hard enough to play hockey. And the Vegas Golden Knights did it in five games and they, uh, 
you know, they roll on and we'll see if they can keep most of that team together and come back and try to win two in a row. And that in other hockey news, the Rangers made a new hire. They hired coach Peter LaViolette to be their new head coach. And I can't say that I'm a huge fan of this hiring because I'm not of the opinion that this is necessarily going to be the roster that gets the team over the hump. I don't, I don't know that this is a team that ends up making it to the Stanley Cup final or winning the chip, but the Rangers clearly do. Chris Drury clearly does, and he thinks that this is going to be the guy who's going to be able to stabilize the franchise and get them to where they need to go. And I'm kind of of the opinion, I know in hockey, you know, you need kind of a tactician as a coach. In baseball, for example, coach doesn't really matter as much. NBA, you know, coach doesn't matter as much, of course. I think NBA and hockey are probably pretty similar in that, you know, you, you need a coach with a system. But after that, you just let the players play. I think that the Rangers really miss an opportunity here to go after a guy like Jay Lee, who's an assistant with the Kraken, and hit a home run with their head coaching hire. They've opted for the safe play a majority of the time, I would say, over the past decade when searching for new head coaches. And aside from Quinn, it's been like, you know, the usual suspects. It's been John Tortorella, it's been Gerard Gallant, LaViolette now. Before that, Elaine Vigneault was in there. It's just there's not really any creativity with the head coaching hires. And I understand that the Rangers, with kind of their franchise history and the roster they have now, I mean, they're expected to contend. But I was really hoping they were going to go for a more under-the-radar hire, try to basically find their own version of Rod Brindamore, who I think you can make the case is the best coach in the NHL right now. Um, they, They just haven't been able to find a stable head coach who they can ink to a long-term deal. And I think until they find that, this franchise is just going to continue kind of like being good, but not great. Um, I also think maybe I'm putting too much pressure on the head coach. I mean, obviously the guys have to play hockey and the version of hockey that the Rangers play is very pretty and looks great in the regular season. I just don't think it wins games in April, May, and June. But the larger point here is I think you you got to try to hit a home run with your coaching hire and this very much to me feels like the safe play. Yeah, he's going to have he's going to have some issues too. He's got to figure out how to get Alex Lafreniere and Cabo Caco to play better. And they have to they have to shore up the defense. That's the bottom line. Is they need to clear the middle of the ice. They need to do better on the defensive end. Yeah, they had a they had an injured defenseman and I I get that it was probably their best defenseman and there's just a bunch of question marks. I don't think they're going to be able to re-sign Patrick Kane. I don't know that they're going to re-sign Vladimir Tarasenko. So they're going to have to go out and get maybe younger guys who are getting paid less money. LaViolette's going to have to get Lafreniere and Capococco to play better and play more. I think you're going to end up moving uh, either either one of those guys up to the, the top line because Tarasenko and Kane are gone. And look, you have Artemi Panarin, you have Mika Zibanejad, but if they don't play defense, they're not going to really get that far. So I think he's got his work cut out for him. And that's, you know, those are going to have to be two of his projects. And, you know, LaViolette is, is he, like you were saying, he's one of those recycled coaches. And that's one of the things in the NFL. A lot of times you, you go out and you look for a guy who is a tactician, who can get the most out of his players. And you've seen that a lot. There's a bunch of young coaches out there that have been coaching now as head coaches and getting their teams to the playoffs and playing well. Well, the NHL doesn't really do that all that much. I think that they a lot of them rely on recycled coaches and it's time to get the analytics into hockey a little bit more. I know it's there, but you have to get the analytical guy in there to to change things a little bit. I think they're the, the Rangers had a very very good team and they just didn't play well in the playoffs. They didn't play well down the stretch. Now I don't know if there were injuries and that's why they didn't play well down the stretch, but they didn't play well in the playoffs and they didn't play well down the stretch. And you have it's it's like the Florida Panthers. Not the best of seasons, but they got hot at the right time. But Peter Laviolette has it he's won a Stanley Cup as a coach. He's gotten to the Stanley Cup finals a a, a few times. We'll see if he can get this Rangers team at least to get to the conference championship 
and then maybe into the Stanley Cup. That's what he's tasked with. So I don't think Gerard Gallant did a bad job. I guess it was time for the Rangers to move on from him. But I'm not sure this is the best hire. But I think this is a hire that can make a difference. It sh- he should be able, he's a little bit younger than Gerard Gallant. He should be able to relate to the players and he should be able to get the most out of these players that are playing. So I think in that respect, when it comes to the Rangers, you know, they could have looked around a little bit more. Apparently, from everything I've read, they spoke to a lot of potential coaches and this was the direction they went in. So, you know, we'll see how this, how this, translates into wins for the Rangers or, you know, getting further in the playoffs. But the, the, you know, you saw the Panthers get hot at the right time. That's what the Rangers are going to be tasked with is trying to get hot at the right time. All right, dad, let's move from the hardwood and the ice to the fairways. Liv and PGA have merged in even the introduction. I mean, you basically gave your opinion. You said you thought Liv basically bought the PGA tour. I don't think that's too far off base. I'm curious to hear if you have more thoughts or want to expand on that. Well, you're, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the LIV is, is owned by the Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, which, which is worth over $600 billion. Well, I, I don't know about you, Max, but that's a, that's a boatload of money. Like if you filled up a boat with dollar bills, yeah, it'd probably come up to about 620 billion of them. So, I think that there had to be some sort of compromise between the two because LIV clearly went and stole players. But the players who were playing on the PGA Tour seem to be okay with just playing on the PGA Tour. I, I don't have the back end of this. And as we record this, the U.S. Open is going on right now. And, you know, there's two guys that shot 62s today on Thursday as we record this. Uh Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley. And so I I don't know what went into the back end of this. I don't know if the sponsors were pulling out of the PGA because it wasn't as popular as live. I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it all went down, but it's very, very strange because when this first went down and it went down about a year ago, PJ said, "Nope, we're not getting involved. We're going to sue them. We're going to do." This. And th- that was part of the 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 merger is that all the lawsuits between the two were going to get dropped. But I think that the PGA sold its soul. I think Jay Monahan made some sort of a deal, and it's just one of those things that's going to come back and bite them because now you know the Saudis are trying to you know work on their image. And these guys who didn't go to the live tour or maybe even weren't invited to the live tour don't want to be part of that. They know that the Saudis have dirty hands. They know that the Saudis are not good people, but yet now they're going to have to take their money if they want to win. If they win a tournament, well, they're, they're taking some of the Saudis money one way or the other. And it really put the players who stayed with the PGA Tour in a really bad spot because when they went out to play at the U.S. Open, all the big players have to sit at the podium and answer questions. And what do you think the first questions were? It's like, oh, how do you feel going into the U.S. Open? You did well at this tournament. Do you think that'll translate to the U.S. Open? These were not the questions. The questions were all about the merger. And these guys don't want to answer these questions. You have guys that were very, very vocal about not wanting to be part of that. Rory McIlroy didn't want to be part of that and actually, you know, spoke very poorly of that whole thing. So I think that there's a lot of players who felt like they got stabbed in the back. And we'll see, you know, where where this goes, because you know what happens when these things happen. They go and start a third league somewhere. And try and raise the money and decide, you know, that's what we're, we're going to do. I think Greg Norman has some sort of league by himself, too. So I, I, there's always a chance that something like that can happen. Greg Norman was a live spokesperson, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure if he, if he like, dissolved his affiliation with uh, Liv or, or what, what it was. But, yeah, I, th- I think he was involved with Liv somehow. But e- either way, the larger point here – what I'll say is that I understand players who want to get paid and like 
for guys like Phil Mickelson, right? Like if your morals are so are, are aligned in such a way that you're, you can sleep at night taking money from the Saudis then like, so be it, you know, like that's not, I guess for me to judge, I, I don't agree with it, but if that's something he can do, then fine. What I don't agree with is all of these players basically like saying that, oh, the guys on the PGA, like I feel bad for them because they didn't come. It's like, no, well, either they weren't invited or they didn't want to because they either respect the institution that is the PGA or they didn't want to take the, you know, this money from the Saudis. But the other part of this is is something I mentioned on our Instagram story last week, guys like Bryson DeChambeau who come out and say like, oh, I mean, this is paraphrasing, but in essence, he said, it's time for the families of the victims of 9-11 to move on and forget it's been 22 years. Like, that's insane. And and he was asked point blank by a reporter on CNN, what do you say to the families of the victims who were killed during 9-11? And do you see any strangeness or any problem in taking money from these people who have backed terror organizations? And he basically was like, I can't speak to that. I'm a golfer. But that has nothing to do with golf. That's not political. The question is, are you okay taking money from people who have committed acts of terror? Evidently, the answer for Bryson DeChambeau is yes. But, you know, he gave one of those like, oh, you know, we're just trying to grow the game of golf, like nonsense answers. And I I have a huge problem with that because I think that if these guys, I mean, granted, I I don't know. I will say Jay Monahan came down with an illness or something like that this week. And it's very curious timing that Twitterverse is having a field day with that. So if that's the fate that is going to befall you, if you speak poorly of the Saudis, I can understand these guys not not wanting to say anything negative. But I think there's also a middle ground. Like you don't have to help them rehabilitate their image. You can say, look, I'm in it for the money. Or you can say, look, I'm just here to play golf. I know that they've done bad things, but I'm just here to play golf. And, and I, I don't think anybody who's taken money from the live tours joined the live tour has really acknowledged that. And that's a benefit to the, the Saudis because now, I mean, they're basically getting good press, which is obscene. And that's exactly what they're looking for. And I was, I have to correct a mistake that I made. I thought that Greg Norman had his own tour and Norman actually is the, is the commissioner and CEO of the live tour. Yeah, that's and, what I thought. And, I thought he had some sort of affiliation there. And it looks now like Jay Monahan is actually going to be in charge. So his na- his days as the commissioner of the Live Tour and the CEO of the Live Tour could be over. And we'll see what he thinks of the Live Tour when that happens. As far as Greg Norman's concerned, he's saying, nope, the Live Tour is going to still remain the way it is. I, I don't see how that can be. But you know, the the illness that Jay Monahan came down with and he's taking a leave of absence, of course, you know, right as the US Open is about to start and he's gonna have to answer questions. And they leave Greg Norman out there to answer the questions. He has a thirty minute call and and blah, blah, blah. And it sounds to me like Greg Norman might not even know what's going on. And they left him to talk about what's gonna happen with L I V golf. So it was a very strange merger. It came on very, very quickly. And it was, I think it came as a shock to a lot of people. And I think that, you know, Bryson DeChambeau and there's, there's a bunch of guys that found out on social media that this was going down. And it's kind of crazy that this is, you know, they, they, they condemned the LIV, LIV the PGA Tour did. And now all of a sudden they're in bed with them. So how how does that all happen? It's all about money. And I don't know if sponsors were drawing up for the PGA because they didn't have the big names or they lost some of the big names. But I'm, I'm not sure what made Jay Monahan go out and make this deal and have to make this deal. It just it it puzzles me, Max, and it's it's disturbing that somebody you know that money. They will- money is the answer. Just to be clear, like money, no, like that's, I, I mean, that's what it is. I, I think so, there's no other justifiable reason. The money is throwing the game I, I of golf, quote unquote. I, I understand that, but the money seemed to be there, and unless the PGA was having a problem getting funded and getting sponsors to sponsor their tournaments and continue to sponsor their tournaments. I know the travelers is coming up in July and that's played here in Connecticut. 
at some point we'll find out what the real deal is and why this all went down and the way it was went down where it was really one guy making a decision for everybody and it's done and LIV somehow some way is going to merge with the PGA and I don't know if the Saudis maybe want it out and figure you know here take this and we're, we're going to give it away but you know with an investment fund the way the way they have it with that kind of money I, I would venture to say that's not exactly what's happening any other uh, any other thoughts I feel like we've both ranted sufficiently here dad no, I, I just, I, it, it blew my mind. I wasn't, I, I was out of the country when this went down. And, you know, when I saw it happen, I was like, whoa, really? How can this be? Because they, they were so set, so dead set against LIV starting and stealing golfers. And they banned them from the PGA tournaments. They wouldn't let them play in the tournaments. And you, you, you know, in hindsight, they let them play in the Masters this year. So maybe something was brewing way back when, and we didn't see it coming. And it jumped up and it, it got here. And that's exactly what could have happened because all of a sudden the PGA was saying, oh, you know, maybe you can play in our tournaments. Maybe that's okay. And they let them back in for the Masters. And it, uh, it could have been something that was in the works way back when in April when they let them back into the Masters, and it was kind of an unceremony. They was, yeah, yeah, we'll let you back in. We'll, we're going to let you back and play in the Masters because it's the Masters. But it's a it's a very very strange thing when you you know you you say such things about I don't want to call him an enemy, but someone who pops up and and steals a lot of your golfers and makes a a big deal out of taking your golfers and pays these golfers a ton of money. I mean, they, you know, Phil Mickelson. It, 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 hundreds of millions of dollars he got to put in his pocket from this live tour. And Greg Norman, not playing golf anymore, got paid handsome sums of money to be the CEO and the commissioner. And all these other golfers that went and played on the LIV tour, just, they got paid just to play. It, not even if they won, they were, they were getting paid to be there. And I know that there's appearance fees for a lot of these golfers in these tournaments, but, these aren't just appearance fees, Max. These are life-changing sums of money. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have I don't have anything else on the subject. Like I said, I feel like I've ranted sufficiently here. But we've talked. We've talked. I'm just. I just want to say, like, we've talked pretty extensively about the Live Tour since its inception, and I have a feeling this is not going to be the last segment we do on Live before the merger becomes official. You're probably right about that, because. At this point, nobody really knows how this merger is going down. So when it does go down, we'll see where everything stands. I don't know. You don't know. I'm not sure they even know because there seems to be a lot of I's to dot and a lot of T's to cross. So we'll see what what happens down the road as this merger, if you want to call it, progresses. And, you know, all all the ink is dry and they figure out how to coexist. All right, Dad. Last segment of the week. Davy Martinez went off in a press conference Loved this week, Loved and this—you this, just don't see this very often. You see coaches and players criticize referees, criticize umpires, but you just don't see what happened in this press conference. He brought out a picture to show that a runner was in the baseline, and the Nationals ended up losing the game by one run. The throw went into the runner who was not in the baseline, and ended up scoring a run. So he had a justified gripe, but. As if that were not good enough to just tell people, he brought a picture that was printed out in color to the press conference and showed everybody. And the first thing I want to say is I didn't know the Nationals were like that. Color printer at the office, that's kind of nice. But the other thing <laughs> is like – The Lerner family is not Jeep. No, I know. But like, I mean, color printer at the office, like that's a big baller. Um But yeah, it's it's, it, it's wild. I mean, it, it, you don't see this kind of like – I don't want to, it's not really retaliation, but this sort of emotion from managers and coaches regarding calls in the regular season to the point where they're going to bring out a photograph and show it to the media. And, and again, Martinez's gripe was justified. The runner was not in the baseline. He was out of the baseline. Yep. That's absolutely true. But it was just, it was wild to see. And it was kind of refreshing because it's something like, you know, We've, we've both watched a ton of sports in our lives. 
every day you see something new and and this was the new thing of the week and I I really enjoyed it. I know it was uh not taken well probably by the umpires association and I'm sure I'm sure Davey has a big fine coming, but at the end of the day sports is entertainment and this was one of the more entertaining press conferences that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it, and and it it's happened before. And, you know, and Davey Martinez had the blow up and he's like, "Look, He's clearly out of the baseline. He's running on the grass. You're, you're supposed to run in that that dirt lane. It's a, a three foot wide dirt lane, and you're supposed. I, is it? Is, I think it's three feet wide. It is three feet wide, and you're supposed to run in that lane. And you know, a lot of batters will take a a little bit of a shortcut, two or three steps on the grass, and then get in the lane. If you're bunting, or if you're swinging, and you're you're off balance, you end up taking a few steps on the grass, and then getting into the lane, but he, he was clearly on the grass, probably four fifths of the way down. Then he got onto the dirt, but I think that the ball was thrown and the first baseman just didn't catch the ball and it led to a run and they ended up, the nationals ended up losing the game. It's not the first coach to use pictures to show referees that they were wrong. You know, Bill Coward did it. In 1995, with a game with the Pittsburgh Steelers, he stuffed a Polaroid in an official's pocket. And I, I don't even know what the play was, but he he was so irate that he had a Polaroid photo. Now, in a, in a lot of NFL, they now use iPads, so they don't do the pictures anymore, but they used to send the pictures down to show quarterbacks' formations, to show other things that you can use the pictures to try and read defenses or show your offense that somebody made a mistake and was in the wrong place, whatever it was. And so they had all these pictures. And so Bill Cowery actually took it and stuffed it in the official shirt pocket. They have a pocket on all their shirts and he stuffed it in the pocket, but that's not all. Patrick Beverly did it this season. He actually took a camera from, I believe it was a photographer he said, show me this play. And it was a, a play where LeBron James was fouled and by a Boston Celtic. And Patrick Beverly was so incensed that he grabbed the camera from somebody and goes to the referee and says, look, there was a foul. You didn't call a foul. There's a foul. And they didn't call it. And, of course, Patrick Beverly gets a technical foul. And LeBron James was pissed that he didn't get the foul call and Patrick Beverly ends up getting the technical foul and the Celtics actually beat the Lakers in that game 125-121 but Patrick Beverly using a prop to prove his point and you know I, I get it there, there's there's this competitive fire Max that these players have and these coaches have where they want we, we have replay now to get things right and in certain circumstances, you can't go to the replay. You can't challenge certain calls. And it makes makes managers crazy. It makes players crazy that they can't do that, where a play was blatantly called incorrectly. And you have, you know, in our day and age where the Twitterverse has it up there before it even is probably shown on TV, but it was clear that the guy was running out of the baseline and they wouldn't reverse the call. And Davey Martinez will get fined and, you know, the league will talk to him because anytime you say anything bad about referees or umpires, you can just, you might as well bring your checkbook to the podium with you and, but he proved his point. It's, he, he made a point. He proved his point, And the umpires got the call wrong. So I think that it's just funny that there's a bunch of instances where people use pictures. I mean, back you, you go back to 1995, Max. It's 28 years Bill Cowher did this and was, was using a Polaroid picture to prove his point. But it was, you know, Davey Martinez was pissed. And I don't blame him. He got thrown out of the game. And then his post-game press conference, he showed you the, showed showed everybody the picture. And there it was. Yeah, and, and I'm sure this will not be the last strange incident we see like this, but nonetheless, a refreshing take, a fun take. I think, you know, obviously the fine's coming, but it was it was entertaining, like I said before, to see see him do that. And I think it's always kind of a cool moment in sports when we see the officials kind of getting called out like that, because we've seen in the past, really across all leagues, the officials are kind of absolved from that sort of criticism from 
the players and coaches, obviously the, the fans and the media can go nuts with that sort of stuff, but the, the players and coaches don't usually get as incensed as Davey was during this conference. So I thought that was at least uh, nice to see another side of him, kind of another side of the player coach aspect of the game. Yeah, I, it, look, and it goes back to something I said before. The managers, the, the players, fans, we have the ability to get it right. And they just don't, they don't, they're not getting that right. And he, he proved that they didn't get it right. So, you know, I, I get it. You can blame the umpire and Davey Martinez is, it's going to cost him something, either one game suspension or, you know, an undisclosed amount of money, but it's going to cost him something. And because they don't, the league doesn't let you rip the officials. In that Lakers game, the Lakers coach said, "I, I don't want to see the last two minute report because it's bullshit, and I don't want I don't want to get an apology letter saying, oh yeah, we made a mistake.' Because the apology and the NFL does the same thing; they send you a, the last two minute report. When if they miss something, they apologize. You don't want an apology that just makes you even more mad. Oh yeah, yeah, we missed it. You lost the game. Sorry, you lost by four points. Sorry." It just doesn't work that way. So Davey Martinez trying to make a point, made his point, and we wait and see what his fine is going to be. This has been another episode of Podcast by Committee with Andrew and Max Brill. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, or any other podcast platform. We're there. And rate and review us on Apple while you're at it. It'll only take a couple seconds. So head on over there and leave us a five-star review. If you want to connect with us on Instagram at podcast underscore by underscore committee and Twitter at pod by committee, or you can reach out to us via email hosts at podcast by Thanks again for listening to podcast by committee. Thanks again to Mason Pettit for the introduction, Kevin McLeod for the music and shout out to pre Kliegerman for our graphics. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then stay safe.